This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa and are on frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa. We are also on channel nine zero two on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spumele Lezondi. In studio with me this hour is Anne Musa. There's also Wisani Matebula and Tamekloza has your sports news. Let's take a look at your top stories on Africa Digest. Cameroon military saved 72 Muslim children from an illegal prison. DRC's Katanga province battles measles outbreak in economics, access to finance, corruption, insufficient human capital and lack of infrastructure remain the key inhibiting factors to do business within the SADC region. And in sports, South Africa's Trade Union Federation calls for removal of the national rugby coach. Here's Anne Musa with your news. A very good afternoon to you. Amnesty International says the alleged rape of a 12-year-old girl and the apparent indiscriminate killings of a 16-year-old boy and his father by UN peacekeeping forces in the Central African Republic must be urgently investigated. The incidents took place at the beginning of this month as peacekeeping forces from the UN were carrying out an operation in the capital Bangui's Muslim enclave. Amnesty's senior crisis response advisor Joanne Marina says the evidence strongly suggests that a UN peacekeeper raped a young girl and that another one is indiscriminately killed two civilians. The Republic of Congo's President Dennis Sasuengesu has replaced two ministers. The civil service minister and minister of trade last month spoke against constitutional changes that would pave the way for Sasuengesu to seek a third term in office. The president is banned by the current constitution from seeking another term. However, last month he called a national forum to discuss reforms including raising the maximum age for presidential candidates and scrapping the two-term limit. The United Nations has warned against the release of prisoners in Mali. The Human Rights Office says the mass release of prisoners accused of serious human rights violations is sure to backfire on the country. 44 prisoners have already been released despite either facing war crimes charges or having links to a terrorist organizations. UN Human Rights Office spokesperson Ravina Shamdasani. These releases are being done as part of a confidence-building measure, but they are sure to backfire, and they are sure not to serve the causes of peace and reconciliation, which were so difficult to come to this agreement. And in fact, the peace agreement was a very good one. It had provisions against amnesty for gross violations of human rights. This is being violated already. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says an interministerial committee is making progress in coming up with plans to deal with controversial new immigration laws. Tourism has suffered because of new regulations with 38% fewer Chinese tourists visiting South Africa. Zuma says the committee is headed by the Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. I would like to announce the establishment of the Interministerial Committee on Immigration Regulations. The IMC will address the unintended consequences of the new immigration 
regulations on various sectors including tourism and investment. The IMC is chaired by the Deputy President Ramaphosa and comprises the Ministers of Tourism, Home Affairs, Trade and Industry, Social Development and Small Business Development. And finally, the American County of St. Louis has declared a state of emergency following another day of unrest in Ferguson. The county spokesperson, Steve Stanger, says they will immediately take charge of police emergency management. His statement was issued as an 18-year-old was charged in connection with a shootout in Ferguson after protests marking the first anniversary of the police shooting of black teenager Michael Brown. Meanwhile, in the CBD, more than 50 protesters were arrested after climbing the barricade around a courthouse during a demonstration. And that's the news. I'll be back with headlines at 5.30 Central African Time. Thank you very much, and Musa, with that update. The time is 17.05 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest. Right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spomele Lezondi, with you until 1800 hours this evening. Now, the Cameroon military has saved 72 Muslim children from an illegal prison in the northern town of Ngaoundere. The children had been detained there for between eight months and four years in what promoters of the cell say is in line with teachings of Islam. The children who looked malnourished, dirty and hungry have been taken to hospital for emergency care. The people behind this outrage were most likely preparing these children to become extremists. Last March, Cameroon called on its citizens to beware of people preaching extremism. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaka. 45-year-old Usmaila Ibrahim, who has served as prisoner in the illegal prison for four years, says the 72 of them, including 50 teenagers, two girls and 20 men, were chained and given food and water to drink once every other day. He says their supervisor prohibited them from taking a bath more than once in three months and told them it was part of Islam teachings. He says it is something that can't be explained and that people should stop hiding behind religion to do bad things. The 50 teenagers, 20 men and 2 girls were detained in a 16 square meter room where they slept on the bare floor and were asked to be obedient in whatever they would be asked to do in the future. Abaka Ahmad, governor of the Adamawa region of Cameroon, where Ngaoundere is found, has condemned the act, saying such people may be training others to commit atrocities. Il y a beaucoup de problèmes qui se posent à cause de notre position géographique, ce qui nous impose. He says there are many of such problems they are facing because their geographic location, sharing boundary with Nigeria, now exposes them. He says they must be vigilant at every moment and multiply strategies to combat this new form of crime. Imam Baba Musa of the Ngaoundere Mosque says such practices are not part of Islam. He says parents should be very careful with the people they deal with 
because Boko Haram fighters who have extended suicide bombings to Cameroon may be recruiting their kids. Les parents disent ils envoient l'enfant à l'école pour aller apprendre. He says parents tell them they gave their children to learn good religion and ask their teachers to handle those heading with strong hands. But adds that correction does not mean brutality. He says it is advisable to make the children to be afraid, but not to brutalize them. Cleric Said Abdurrahman says the government should arrest the promoter of the prison and investigate those behind him. Certains parents ne connaissent pas les véritables fondements de leur religion. Je parle de l'islam. He says many parents do not know the fundamentals of their Muslim religion. He says they send their children, especially heady children, to be rehabilitated by people who are unbelievers. And such things should be prohibited. And the government should take care of people who behave as such. Autour de soi, on les dénonce et que le ministère public prenne charge de ce genre de comportement. The promoter of the illegal prison has been detained. He is said to have links with some Muslim leaders in northern Nigeria, former strongholds of Boko Haram. Eight months ago, he began asking parents in Gaoundary to send all of their troublesome children to him for rehabilitation. He asked the parents and relatives of the people he admitted not to bother about their needs and said he had some funding but did not disclose where his funds were coming from. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. And remember that you can give us feedback on this and any other story. We are on Twitter and you can find us on Channel Africa 1 on Twitter. It's Channel Africa Numerical 1 on Twitter. Now, Chad is today marking its anniversary of independence from France gained in 1960. The day honors the historic occasion of achieving freedom after a long and bitter struggle. However, the African nation's post-independence history has been marked by instability and violence stemming from mostly... Um, tension between the mainly Arab Muslim North and the predominantly Christian and animist South. Jane Matebula reports. A largely semi-desert country, Chad is rich in gold and uranium and stands to benefit from its recently acquired status as an oil exporting state. However, Africa's fifth largest nation suffers from inadequate infrastructure and internal conflict. Poverty is rife and health and social conditions compare unfavorably with those elsewhere in the region. Education in Chad is challenging due to the nation's dispersed population and a certain degree of reluctance on the part of parents to send their children to school. Although attendance is compulsory, only 68% of boys continue past primary school and more than half of the population is illiterate. The healthcare sector remains very precarious due to the lack of qualified personnel. Access to healthcare is also problematic in some areas which have almost no properly functioning social medical structure. With an estimated population of over 11 million people, Chad is currently led by Idris Deby. The capital of this African country is N'Djamena. The official languages spoken are French and Arabic. It is a religiously diverse country with about 53% of the population Muslim, 20% Roman Catholic and others are Protestant, animist and atheist. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg.
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's go to the Democratic Republic of Congo now. Now, since the beginning of the year, a measles epidemic has been ravaging Katanga province in the southeast of the DRC. More than 267 deaths have been reported in the first six months of the year. Supporting the Ministry of Health, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has vaccinated close to 300,000 children in four of the country's provinces. For more on this issue, here's MSF's project coordinator, John Johnson. For the outbreak... It's difficult to say exactly when the outbreak started, but we saw uh, certain areas in early January, and uh, the MOH asked MSF to help respond in early March, and so we, we started deploying our teams uh, early March to respond to the epidemic in Katanga. But there are still some areas that are uh, in ongoing uh, periods of epidemic, and uh, our, our peak that we saw here in Katanga was around early June. Speaking of Katanga, reports have it that measles is virtually endemic in Katanga and epidemics are recurring. What are the contributing factors to this phenomenon in Katanga, particularly where it seems to be hardest hit by measles outbreak every now and again? Right, you're correct. Measles is not new in Katanga. We see an outbreak here practically every four years. A lot of the reasons for that is the, uh, the population in Katanga don't all live in cities. They live in very rural situations. A lot of them live in places accessible only by boat, by bicycle, by motorcycle. So to get vaccines to these people in a cold chain, to keep the vaccines cold, is a very, very difficult situation for logistics. And the Ministry of Health, they they have a hard time maintaining that level of logistics to do a a regular vaccine campaign. Even uh, MSF, with all of our logistic capabilities, it's very difficult for us to do this vaccine campaign in mass because it's just a very big challenge of accessibility. Now, the death toll was reported to be close to 300. Can you confirm the official death toll? Yes. Actually, it's probably much higher than that. That is the, uh, the number of confirmed cases. But there are many more cases that uh, pass away in the communities that aren't recorded in the register of the Ministry of Health, and they're not counted as measles cases. If we actually counted the real death toll, probably much higher than that because there's lots of kids that die at home that no one uh, no one reports. And you said that MSF has been helping the countries respond to this epidemic since March. If you can update us more on how you are planning to intensify the response efforts and what are you prioritizing? Sure. So for a measles outbreak, there's three things you have to do. 
you have to be able to take care of uh, the severe cases. So in all of our projects, the first thing we do is we open a small hospital that can accept all of the severe cases of measles. We also then start working with the local health centers, giving them medication and uh, helping them provide free care for all of the cases that aren't severe cases, for all the simple cases. And then uh, the third thing that you do is you carry out a vaccination campaign. By the end of July, MSF has already vaccinated about 287,000 children. And in Katanga, it's been uh, 150,000 already. That is the voice of John Johnson, who is the project coordinator for Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, on the line from the country's Katanga province. Talking to Jane Matebula, the time is 1716, Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. Now, West Africa is facing an emergency within an emergency, as Ebola survivors face a hard journey to regain health after leaving Ebola treatment centers. Aid agencies say the struggles facing survivors in Guinea Liberia and Sierra Leone are far from over. Beyond psychosocial problems related to stigma and post-traumatic stress disorder, scores of survivors say they are suffering from debilitating joint pain, headaches and fatigue, while others are close to being blind. So far, there are more than 13,000 Ebola survivors across the three most affected countries. Dr. Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization elaborates. We've never had such a large outbreak and we've also never had such a huge number of people survive. And we've now been working with many such people for the last year. And what we're seeing is that they have severe, severe pain, severe joint pain. And this is not just a bit of an ache in the morning. This is so severe people struggle to stand up, struggle to walk and struggle to work. A lot of people suffer from eye problems. It's a range of eye problems. Some of it may be due to ongoing inflammation inside the eye. Sometimes it's the front of the eye, the cornea. People also suffer from a range of mental problems, depression, headaches, anxiety. Is it known, doctor, at this stage why some recovered patients are still suffering from these lingering side effects months later? What we're doing now is a great deal of work with some of the experts in the world in the different areas of illness that the survivors are dealing with. So, for instance, we got a team of ophthalmologists from Emory University in the U.S. and have looked at several hundred people with eye problems. But your real question is, is it Ebola or is it something else? That's a question that we're still trying to answer. Sometimes we find virus, sometimes we don't. So there's a huge number of questions that we now all have to work very hard together to answer. Educate us here. After a patient has survived Ebola, does the virus leave the body completely? No, we're finding that that's not the case for everybody. It varies from person to person. And what we're also doing is a study where people are coming back every week or every few months or so for testing. Now, the tests we have don't show that the whole virus is staying. It does show that fragments of the virus are staying, so that we do know that certainly parts of the virus do stay in the body fluid of quite a lot of people. But the important thing to know about this is we're not seeing that those people cause further infection. So you know, a lot of people thought, oh, my goodness, if the virus stays in the body, then those people must be infecting other people. But we have found that it's not the case. So even though it does stay in the body, what we know now is that it's not likely to be infectious. But we have to keep on studying. You mentioned that there are things that are still not understood about Ebola. How best do you think these knowledge gaps can be bridged? 
Well, one of the challenges is it's completely new. Another challenge is it's in complex areas of medicine, things like ophthalmology. For instance, in Sierra Leone, there are only two ophthalmologists in the entire country, but we have thousands of survivors, and we know that at least 25% of those people will have eye problems. So if you do the maths, we're talking about a huge number of people who need good ophthalmological services now. So that's one area. The joint problems, again, we need experts in rheumatology. Again, a very advanced, complicated area of medicine. So we're reaching out to all partners who can come and help because there's a tremendous amount of work we need to do to help this group of people. Beyond understanding the long-lasting effects of Ebola, what has been done, Doctor, to address the more immediate needs of survivors, such as care and support? Of course, that's a very good question. We've actually now set up survivor clinics so, and we've got a team of people now in each of the countries, not just WHO people, but people from other agencies as well. And we're working with the ministries of health to make sure that, first of all, there are good clinical care services for all survivors. And secondly, that we develop a plan for ongoing treatment. So it's, it's not just enough to have a clinic, but to really understand what their needs are and how we can all meet them wherever they are in the country. So, you know, not just saying, oh, you have to go to this clinic, but making sure there's really a comprehensive plan. And we had a very big meeting in Sierra Leone attended by people from all the affected countries and experts from overseas where that plan has been developed and is finalised. And despite everything else, does the outbreak appear to be winding down? At the moment, we've got very few cases. But this is kind of a very, very crucial tipping point. And I wouldn't really like to say winding down because we've seen this before. I mean, more than 18 months ago in Guinea, they thought the epidemic was over. Quite a lot of the partners like MSF and so on shut up shop and went away. And yet Ebola came roaring back. And then it overwhelmed Liberia and Sierra Leone, as we all know. You know, they had experienced these terrible, terrible outbreaks. So while it's good news that we've only had three cases last week, we have to really be super, super vigilant. That is Dr. Margaret Harris of the World Health Organization on the line from Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown. And she was talking to Elizabeth Litija. South Sudan religious leaders have expressed their disappointment over peace talks that are reportedly faltering in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, despite the approach of August the 17th, which is the deadline for the signing of a permanent peace pact. The push for the pact to be signed is spearheaded by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, the Djibouti-based East Africa Regional Trade and Security Bloc. James Shimanyula has this story for us. With the 17th August deadline for South Sudan warring factions to sign a peace agreement approaching, religious leaders have expressed their sadness at the talks that are reportedly showing faltering progress in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. Archbishop Daniel Dengbul of the Episcopal Church of South Sudan blames President Salva Kiir and his main political and military rival Riek Machar for failing to quickly resolve their political differences with a view to signing the peace agreement to clear the way for the establishment of a government of national unity. We don't want you to negotiate on your position 
and people are being killed. If they wanted to negotiate, let them put the people of South Sudan first. So I wanted to be very clear to my brothers and sisters who are now talking. We are not with you killing our people and you are talking who will become what. That is not what we are for. Ali Haji Ali Mune Ali, a South Sudanese Muslim scholar, has this strong message to the two political foes. The more you keep people fighting, the more you deeper the hatred. So when the, the hatred becomes deeper, that worry has. But you stop it now, then you still you can bring your people back. So we are worried that our people not they should not be taken to that far. We want them to be brought home now before that hatred goes down. Because hatred grow to death. Once you united the family of SPLM, then what, where will be the problem come from? It is because they are not uh, agreeing in the party. That's why there is fighting. So if the party is unified, automatically the rest of the thing will become easy. Edward Nyakani, Executive Director of the Community Empowerment for Progress Organization, CEPOL, which is closely monitoring the Addis Ababa talks, thinks that time has come for the people of South Sudan to do the following. Mobilizing our communities in order to generate a home-based pressure on the warring parties in order to push the warring parties to attain peace because we are tired of the war. Independent political and economic analyst Jacob Achuol had this lamentation. Because the citizens right now are really in trouble, you know, the inflation has increased almost up to 1,000%. Uh, the goods are not available, the people like, don't have money in their hand. Right now, the Toriaganis group seem to be ready for war, and President Key now is talking about peace. But how to do that peace, to convert here to come home, is what is remaining to be desired from the older citizens. James Akoko, lecturer on politics at the University of Juba, reflects on the root causes of the current armed conflict, which has entered the 20th month after resulting in the death of more than 15,000 people, according to United Nations estimates. It is the problem of domination. It is a problem of marginalization. It is a problem of tribalism. And it is a problem of an attempt to create a one-party state without including others. These are all the root causes that have led to this. ICAD need to come and consult with the grassroots. This consultation in hotels in Addis Ababa will never give them the picture. They need to come to the grassroots and see what the grassroots is saying about this peace agreement. James Akok, lecturer on politics at the University of Juba in South Sudan, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. It's time for your news headlines coming a bit early. Here's El Musa. A very good afternoon to you. The Republic of Congo's President Dennis Sasuengeso has replaced two ministers. The Civil Service Minister and Minister of Trade last month spoke against constitutional changes that would pave the way for Sasuengeso to seek a third term in office. 
Amnesty International says the alleged rape of a 12-year-old girl and the apparent indiscriminate killings of a 16-year-old boy and his father by UN peacekeeping forces in the Central African Republic must be urgently investigated. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says an interministerial committee is making progress and coming up with plans to deal with controversial new immigration laws. Those are the stories making headlines. This is Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And the program you're listening to is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with Ms. Pomela Lezondi. We are on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. Now, Greenpeace Japan has warned that the restart of the Sendai nuclear reactor in the Asian nation will not reverse the terminal decline of its nuclear industry. Kendra Ulrich, Greenpeace Japan's senior global energy campaigner, says all nine Japanese nuclear utilities are currently faced with insurmountable safety issues at the nuclear power plants, together with the mounting political, public and legal challenges. Much of the country's nuclear reactors fleet will never restart because they are aging. On the global industry, so the impact of Fukushima globally has been significant. It effectively stopped what the industry was touting as the nuclear renaissance in its tracks. The nuclear renaissance globally was already sort of in reverse because of economic factors before the Fukushima accident happened. So the impact of Fukushima was really to accelerate the decline of the nuclear industry globally. Within Japan, which had the third largest nuclear fleet in the world, the entire entire nuclear fleet has been offline for nearly two years. And since Fukushima, since four and a half years, the vast majority of the fleet is offline. Most of those reactors will never restart in spite of the Abe government really being doggedly committed to pursuing nuclear energy. And uh, with the restart of the Sendai nuclear reactor in Japan, will it be able to reverse the terminal decline of the country's nuclear industry? No, no. The restart of the Sendai reactor, obviously there should be no nuclear reactors restarted in Japan. It is a country that sits on the Pacific Ring of Fire. In order to approve the Sendai restart, the Nuclear Regulation Authority, the NRA in Japan, ignored significant safety issues, including volcanic risks to the reactor site, as well as uh, significant seismic risks. Because of that, the restart of the Sendai reactor is putting the lives and livelihoods of the Japanese citizens living within the shadow of these reactors at unacceptable and also totally unnecessary risk. However, it's also important to understand this restart within the context of the larger Japanese nuclear industry. 
so what we're seeing is one reactor, potentially two, uh, restarted by the end of 2015 in a nation that once was the world's third largest nuclear fleet. Uh, so this is a tiny fraction of the nuclear fleet. And again, no reactor should be restarted. But the fact that the, in spite of massive government support and massive lobbying on the part of the utilities to restart nuclear reactors in Japan, here we are four and a half years later with one reactor restarting, and that is largely due to mass public opposition, legal challenges, and significant safety and technical issues that remain totally unresolved. And none of those things are going to be going away for the foreseeable future, and it will be very unlikely that Japan will ever generate any significant proportion of its electricity from nuclear again. And as the nuclear industry in Japan is still fighting for its very survival, what could be said? about the safety issues in the Nuclear Regulation Authority's review process for the Sendai plant restart. So the Nuclear Regulation Authority, again, ignored significant safety problems, downplayed and completely ignored seismic risks from lower frequency earthquakes, uh, seismic events, which could have a greater impact on the reactor site. Uh, It also did not, as Greenpeace analysis showed from a report that we released in February, did not properly take into account the potential impact of volcanic ash fallout. The Sendai reactor site is located very close to several volcanoes, including Sakawajima, which is the most active volcano in Japan. And the potential impact of a larger eruption from ash, not even from lava flows, but from ash, could be significant at the site. And the NRA did not consider this. These issues are significant at Sendai, but they're also significant for the other reactor sites throughout Japan. And the reason for that is that this is truly highlighting where the NRA's loyalties lie. And that is with the nuclear industry, in that they're willing to ignore significant safety problems in order to go ahead and approve the restart of reactors, rather than putting the health and the safety of Japanese citizens first. The government of Japan has announced a target of 22% of the country's electricity generation of nuclear power by 2030. What is Greenpeace's comment on that? The Abe government's 20 to 22 percent nuclear share target is truly a fantasy. They will not reach that target. And again, that goes back to the fact that there are significant outstanding safety issues, including fault lines underneath reactors. In addition to that, public opposition and legal challenges are causing significant delays. All of those things taken together at each reactor site, Greenpeace did an analysis and came up with 2 to 8 percent of the electricity generation by 2030 could potentially be from nuclear. Again, that share should be zero. There is no reason for any person within Japan to be living with the nuclear threat in their backyard of an operating nuclear reactor, uh, particularly in a country that is extremely seismically active and has a number of other outstanding issues. In addition to that, there are aging-related issues with Japan's nuclear fleet. So a lot of the reactor fleet is older. Many will be too old to operate 
operate. So it is impossible for them to meet that target. And because of that, because of this commitment to a fantasy rather than addressing the reality that exists in Japan post-Fukushima, the Abe government is completely and utterly failing to lead the country towards a truly sustainable, clean energy future that will enable it to meet its carbon reduction commitments and as well as secure energy that Japan will need. And it's worth noting that the Greenpeace analysis that 2 to 8% was also corroborated by Bloomberg New Energy Finance afterwards, where they came up with a figure similar to our high-end figure, about 7 to 8% of the 2030 share. So certainly 20 to 22% won't happen. And if the Abe government does not address this issue in a realistic way and start allowing the renewable energy sector to truly expand and support energy efficiency measures, that means that that energy gap is going to be filled by fossil fuels. That was Kendra Ulrich, who is the Greenpeace Japan Senior Global Energy Campaigner on the line from Tokyo in Japan, talking to Wandile Kalipa. Your time is 17.35 Central African time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance with Ms. Pomela Lezondi. We're going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. Now, South Africa's port city of Durban is rubbing its hands in glee as it hosts another money-spending event, the Lurie's Creative Week, regarding as the Oscars of Advertising. The seven-day event which kicked off yesterday is the highlight of the brand communication industry's year, culminating in the presentation of the Lurie's Awards over the weekend. Joining us on the line is Lurie's CEO, Andrew Human. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Andrew. Hi, Zondi. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Now, could you just tell us briefly what the Lurie's Creative Week is all about? Uh, it's uh, a uh, creative festival uh, celebrating the value that uh, creative uh, creativity adds specifically in the brand communication industry. And it's a whole week of activities where we actually start judging all the uh, region's best work from Monday. And the judging continues until the end of the week, after which we have a uh, seminar series and then we have the award shows and function, host of functions throughout the weekend. And it's also it's, uh, across the whole of Africa and the Middle East. Um, could you just tell us why you haven't decided to just do an award ceremony? Why you've dedicated the whole week to the event? Well, we get uh, around 3,000 entries from across the region. So the uh, one part of the process, a lot of people think, you know, they just see the main event and they think, oh, it's an event. But uh, the awards are actually the culmination of the whole year. And so actually judging 3,000 pieces is what we are doing in the first part of Creative Week. So we have uh, over 160 judges who participate in the judging process. And uh, every day in Durban, we have different judging panels uh, announcing the finalists in the different categories throughout the week. Uh, So that's the first part of the week is primarily focused around judging and then because we have all these international creative leaders coming out it's a great opportunity to have we have an international seminar of creativity on the Friday where we have international thought leaders speaking throughout the day. It must be a huge task to judge over 3,000 entries. What are you looking for? The main thing you're looking for is innovation. 
So you're saying, how have you been innovative? How have you done things differently? You know, I'm sure you've seen, you see so many ads, you hear radio ads, you see so many billboards. And then if I ask you, do you remember a billboard that you saw recently that struck you? You know, if I ask you now, tell me a billboard that you can think about off the top of your head that you remember. What's that? (laughs) <laughs> That's a difficult question. I'm actually, I'm thinking of something in a different part of the world, I'm, I'm an iPhone billboard in South Korea, but that's another story. Yeah, but exactly. So you, and you remember it. Uh, why? Because it was different, because it was a different language. So, that, so that's what you remember. You remember things that are memorable, things that are different, things that are creative. So the, the, the big challenge with communicating, especially in our world today where you've got social media, you've got phones, you've got billboards, you've got TV, you've got YouTube, how do I communicate with you as a consumer in a way that's uh, going to be memorable for you? Mm. Um, let's talk about that as well and how the advertising industry, especially in South Africa, we're going to come to Africa and the Middle East in, the, in a bit, um, especially in South Africa, there's been some criticism, especially of, for example, the loud dancing black person in TV ads. Um, I can't even think of the Lipton's mom, uh, mom feels so good, KFC students dancing over 20 rand. Um, is that how the advertising industry um, is seeing South Africa or South Africans? Well, I see, again, you see, that's the challenge of, uh, of being innovative. So if you look at the work you're talking about, it's people doing, thinking they've got a model and working according to that model. So certainly the examples you've spoken about uh, haven't won anything uh, at the Lurie's. They can be held up as great examples of innovative work. What they're doing is they're saying, let's just use this formula that we have. Uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of people are questioning it and saying, hang on a second, why does all our advertising look like this? And is this really going to be, is this going to work for me as a brand, is it going to work with my market? So what we've also got to start saying is, what should our voice be? And part of it, you know, you've mentioned Africa and the Middle East. The most amazing thing about Africa is it's not one big amorphous con- continent. Each country is different. Nigeria is completely different to Kenya, and it's completely different to Lebanon, and it's different to Botswana. So you cannot just say, oh, everybody's African. It's like it's like looking at Europe and saying the French are the same as the English. They're not. They have completely different cultures, different languages, and Africa is exactly the same. Why did you decide to include the rest of the African continents in the Middle East? Um, well, uh, it's been... Uh, the Middle East has included the, the rest of the continent for quite a few years now, but it's just uh, growing in importance every year and I think really for us it's a key focus now and uh, we want to be showcasing the work from across the region because a lot of right now there's a lot of excitement around Africa and people are saying what is going on in Africa let's see the work that is being done so how do we provide a showcase across the region and the Lurie's is ideally positioned to do that, to say this is what's happening in East Africa, this is what's happening in West Africa, this is what's happening in South Africa. So that's really uh, what we are doing at the moment.
Um, and when it comes to the judging process, um, as you mentioned earlier, that um, different African countries have different cultures, they have different languages. Um, again, I know it's innovation that you're going to tell me about, but apart from that, how, what is it that you're looking for and how are you going to judge a continent so vast and a region so big? So again, when you, yes, you're saying primarily looking at innovation and then after that, we look at relevance and we say, how is this relevant to the target audience? How is it relevant to the brand? So relevance to the target audience is the key thing because that's where you have to understand. If you look at an entry and the entry says, this entry was done in Nairobi, and in Nairobi there's a specific nuance that we are working with or there's a cultural expectation. So you have to understand in communication, in the context of the environment. And you have to be making ads, and that's why you shouldn't just take a global campaign and import a shampoo ad from the United States and play the same ad across the whole of Africa. So what you're looking for is context. So that is a key thing. So you're looking for innovation, but then you're looking for quality, and you're looking for relevance. And is it relevant to the audience? Is it relevant to the brand? Is it relevant to the medium? And that's how you judge across a whole region. Are you impressed so far with what you've seen? I think uh, I, I think uh, so far we, we've uh, just finished two days of judging and uh, the results that are coming out look very good and the judging panels have been happy with what they've seen. So, uh, yeah, I think there's some uh, very uh, good and exciting work uh, coming out that we'll see at the awards on the weekend. All right, Andrew Human, CEO of the Louis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, it's time for your economic news here as we're sending Matebula in studio. Thanks, says Pumelele. Access to finance, uh, corruption, insufficient human capital and lack of infrastructure remains the key inhibiting factors to doing business within the SADC region. These are the concerns expressed by government and business officials attending the Southern African Business Forum in Khaborune in Botswana. The summit comes ahead of the 36th SADC Heads of State Summit that will take place in Botswana next week. Nepad Business Foundation Chairperson Stanley Subramani. When you look at the other trade blocks across the world, for, for example, if you look at the European Union, their intra-trade is in excess of 61%. If you look at Asia, it's in excess of 54%. But yeah, in the southern region, uh, we're down to a mere 16%. So the objective is to get big business, private sector, to work closely with government to see how we can drive integration how we can drive uh, economic development, but more importantly, to have a significant impact on poverty, unemployment and inequality. And South African President Jacob Zuma says looming job losses in the mining and the steel sectors are a big threat to the country's economy. Zuma was addressing the media in the capital, Pretoria, the ailing economy as a result of high wage demands The fragile labor market and weak demand for mineral resources has forced mining houses and steel companies to embark on mass retrenchments. Zuma has urged stakeholders to find alternative ways to save jobs. The threat of job losses in the mining and steel sectors is of 
serious concern to government as it would have a negative impact on many families, communities and the economy. The Presidential Business Working Group last Friday mandated government and the Chamber of Mines to seek an amicable solution outside of the courts. Still in South Africa, still in Engineering Industry Federation of South Africa's chief executive Kaiser Nyantumba says up to 30,000 jobs may be lost if critical linkages with the mining, automotive and construction sectors are affected. In Nyantumba was speaking at a meeting involving the CEO of Steel Mergers that has been convened by Labour Union NUMSA. Ivan Jem, a Secretary General of NUMSA. We're quantifying those numbers, but we're talking about potential threat of plant closure. We're talking about, as we speak, Heifel Steel, known as Everest today, is under business rescue. It's either that company would um, survive that business rescue or it will go complete on a complete closure. Uh, ArcelorMittal might lose that plant in Ferenich and complete. We're facing a crisis of plant closures despite the numbers that are basically ranging from 1,000 and above in all critical companies that we're talking about. Manufacturing production in South Africa fell by 4.4% in June due to sharp declines in the production of basic metals and chemicals. In May, the sector recorded a 1.6% revised contraction. According to Stats SA, on a month-on-month basis, factory output is up 0.9%. Nikolai Klassen is with the Statistics South Africa. The largest negative contribution to the year-on-year decrease in manufacturing production was made by the Petroleum, Chemical Products, Rubber and Plastic Products Division. They contributed negative 1.1 percentage points decline. And then the second biggest was the Basic Iron and Steel, Non-Ferrous Metal Products, Metal Products and Machinery Division, which had a minus 0.7 of a percentage point contraction in June. Automaker Ford will start assembling its best-selling Ford Ranger pickup truck in Nigeria by the fourth quarter. This as it expands in Africa and the Middle East. The Nigerian assembly plant is the first outside South Africa to assemble Ford cars. The auto market in Africa's biggest economy has huge potential but retails only a small amount of new vehicles annually. Meanwhile, rival automakers Renault and Nissan, South South Korea's Kia Motors and Germany's Volkswagen have announced plans to assemble vehicles in Nigeria, which is Africa's most populous nation. And uh, to Ghana, where the country will issue a five-year bond to raise 127 million U.S. dollars this month to help restructure its growing debt. The bond, open to offshore investors, will mainly target institutional investors such as pension funds and unit trusts. Its proceeds will be used to support government finances. Short-term debt accounts for about 42% of Ghana's total domestic debt. And that's how it's looking. Thank you very much for signing Sam for your sports news. Yes, time to close up.
South African Trade Union Federation, Kosatu, has called for the removal of Heine Kamea as the head of the Springbok coach and the selection of a racially mixed team for the weekend test. Channel Africa's Figile Lingwati has more. The call comes in the wake of revelations that five black Springboks approached Kosatu to take up the matter. They alleged to be sidelined in the box setup and as a result unable to entrench themselves in the playing team. The five players are being supported by two white players who are also unhappy about transformation of the team. In the last Springbok match against Argentina in Devon last weekend, coach Henneke Meyer only used two players of colour in the match despite selecting a paltry eight black players for the rugby championship. Western Cape Kosati chairperson Mutlati Tsubane says they will take up the matter. UEFA Champions League winners Barcelona face UEFA Europa League holders Sevilla in the UEFA Super Cup tonight at the Boris Dynamo Arena. And as Channel Africa Sports editor Tabison Dima reports, this match highlights the Spanish soccer superiority in the European football. We do apologize for that. Athletic South Africa ASA has announced a 29-strong squad for the IAAF World Championships in Beijing next month. This is one of the strongest teams in recent years with 13 of the athletes boasting of a national records in their respective events. It is the sprint department where the records have been tumbling at regular intervals. Team spokesperson Hezekiel Sepeng says that they have selected the best possible team. This is the best team, you know, we, we, we've seen our athletes doing well, you know, uh, at the Diamond League meeting. You know, our athletes have been breaking records uh, this season, you know, not only also uh, breaking records, but also breaking barriers, you know. When you look at the, the, the 400, uh, 400 uh, with, with Wade Van Nikiak, you know, breaking that 44 and breaking the 20 seconds, you know, 200 meters. So it, it's, this is, this, is, this, is, this is the best team. Uh, we, we, we have assembled, you know, all our artists are here, experienced, good new guys that are in, so yeah, this is the best. And back to the story that we heard before, that UEFA Champions League winners Barcelona will face UEFA Europa League holders Sevilla in the UEFA Super Cup tonight. Sports editor Tabison Dima reports. This will be the second year running that Spanish clubs have faced off in the final. Sevilla are making their third final, having beaten Barcelona in 2006 and then losing to Real Madrid in 2014 in all Spanish affairs. Barcelona go into tonight's final for the ninth time looking to equal AC Milan record of five wins. There has been 18 all Spanish Super Cup finals with 11 wins. Spain is leading the Super Cup wins with 11, and by tomorrow, that stat will read 12 wins. Italy boasts 9 wins, England has 7, Germany has 3, while France have 2 Super Cup wins. Barca's coach Luis Enrique will join Pep Guardiola, Carlo Ancelotti and Diego Simeone as the player coaches who have won the cup. Barca starts as favourites to leave the trophy, but Sevilla has the experience and the pedigree to cause a major upset. So we wait with bated breath for what promises to be another breathtaking, mind-blowing and memorable history-making night of European football.
And finally, the world's top-ranked golfer Rory McIlroy put in a practice round at Westland Straits as he looks ahead to teeing off this week's PGA Championship on Thursday. The Northern Irishman, who tied for the ninth in the US Open at Chambers Bay in his most recent start, has been out of action since he ruptured his ligament in his left ankle while playing soccer with friends on July the 4th. You know, it, you know I, I was anticipating feeling a bit rusty and a bit sort of out of sorts for the first couple of weeks, but... Um, you know, I've started hitting balls on the 20, 28th of July, so what's that, been like a week and a half, two weeks, um, and it feels good, you know, this is, you know, I've played quite a lot of golf since, um, since starting to hit balls, and, you know, it feels good, you know, I'm fine in the middle of the club face, um, I think the one thing for me was, was if my short game was sharp, but, I mean, I've been chipping and putting since basically this happened, you know, I was putting in the boot, so, um, so it's been, you know, I've kept that part of the game sharp, so everything feels feels pretty good. And that's the end of our sports. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Right, let's recap our top stories at 1756 Central African time. Cameroon military saves 72 Muslim children from an illegal prison. DRC's Katanga province battles measles outbreak. In economics, access to finance, corruption, insufficient human capital and a lack of infrastructure remain the key inhibiting factors to do business within the SADC region. In sports, South Africa's Trade Union Federation calls for the removal of the national rugby coach. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Fiso Mashiko, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments, send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za, on SMS plus 27796957930. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero on Twitter channel Africa One that is channel Africa One on Twitter we leave you with Was My Fortress by Mbongen Gem.